Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In 2003, Daniel Jenis was arrested for committing robberies to pay for his heroin addiction. He then served 10 years in prison. During a sentence, Daniel began cooking his own food as an alternative to prison meals. Using impromptu cookware, including jury-rigged pots, he managed to fry mackerel and make dumplings. Daniel joins us today to talk about his methods, his recipes, and how good food was critical to surviving a long prison term. You might think that that's pretty frivolous of a person to risk going to the box where you could be driven crazy just to have a, a dumpling. But I'll tell you, taste is one of the real ways you can travel through time and go home for a moment. Also coming up, we learn how to make chicken fricassee with tomatoes, potatoes, and carrots. And Dr. Aaron Carroll tells us why coconut oil may not be as healthy as you think. But first, it's my interview with culinary historian Yolanda Shoshana about how cognac became the drink of choice in the black community. Yolanda, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Let's start with what is cognac and where is it produced? Cognac is known as a eau de vie, which is water of life in France, and it is produced in a cute, charming little town, Cognac. It's a brandy. It has to be produced in Cognac to be Cognac. <laughs> um, and it's made from uh, uni grapes. They are white wine grapes. And normally it's aged two years and you have your four years. And then as you get more expensive... Like that $2,000 bottle, it'll, it'll be a mix of eau de vie from years and years and years till you get to that $20,000 bottle, which could be drops from when a king may have had a little drop of that. What you've written about and talked about is the connection that the black community in the United States has with cognac, especially Hennessy, which we'll get to. So h- how did this get started? Well, the soldiers were stationed in France, uh, the First World War and the Second World War, and that's when they started drinking cognac. It became their spirit, and then they kept drinking it when they got back to the United States. And then, of course, between the wars, Josephine Baker and all the jazz in Paris and everything else. So at that time, I guess it also became part of that culture, right? Yeah, so Josephine Baker, actually, this is kind of where Hennessy also came in. They did employ her as a, a ambassador. So she actually would go and serve the cognac to people to say hello and to show appreciation for the troops because she was living there and she would serve them. And it was just like, I mean, what could be better than Josephine Baker handing you a glass of cognac? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <Not> yeah. <laughs> you also said, this was really interesting, that 
you know, whiskey in this country, mm-hmm. a lot of the brands like Rebel Yell weren't designed to appeal to the black community. I mean, cognac, for obvious reasons, was was a better choice in many ways. Right. So when the soldiers did come back to the United States, after having sampled cognac, whiskey bourbon had uh, a habit of producing racially disturbing ads. Like, they were racist. Um, Depicting slaves serving owners and then showing slaves as lazy, and then they would do blackface ads. So... Black folks weren't so thrilled about that, so they kept drinking cognac. And then Hennessy, starting in the 50s, yes. uh, was very smart and started advertising in Ebony and Jet magazines. Yes, yeah. They also hired not just Josephine Baker, but they hired people actually to, you know, they brought in black executives at a time when that was not common. Right? Yes, they actually hired one of the first African-American executives in the country. His name is Herb Douglas. And Herb Douglas actually used to be a runner, and he was in the Olympics. And he knew everybody. And that was a good move because Herb could open doors. Like, if Herb called, people answered the phone. But Hennessy also, they looked at each other in a meeting and said, if we're really serious about being part of the African-American community, we should put our money where our mouth is. And that's why they also decided to hire him. And then they also gave money to help form the NAACP, which was also crucial. Then it gets into modern culture in a very big way with rap, et cetera. As the culture changed, Hennessy kept up with the culture or the culture kept up with Hennessy, depending on how you look at it. How, how did that work out? In the 90s, you see cognac not doing so great and sales were down. And this is when it became popular with rappers. You had P. Diddy and Buster Rhymes. They had a rap song called Pass the Cavassier. Cavassier saw their sales skyrocket. So then all the other... Cognac brand said, hold on, wait a minute. And that's when they decided to reach out to other rappers and say, hey, why don't we partner? Why don't you become an ambassador? And then you start seeing rappers mentioning Hennessy in songs because it's what they were drinking. Because that's what rap music is. Rap music is about our culture and it's about, um, it's our politics. But uh, anyway, you can catch me any day, sipping Hennessy, and my peeps get plenty yay. In many ways to see that I hold this door. Cats faked it, I made it, I told you so. So Hennessy, I, I guess, was one of the companies that pioneered this this notion of thinking about different cultural groups in, in, in working with them. Is this now been taken up by everybody else, and this is what everybody's doing today, and is it is it morphing into something to the next phase, the next chapter of the story? Well, there's a piece of it where you can't find certain cognacs in certain places because people think it's too urban, as I put in quotes. And I know the Hennessy ambassador and somebody asked him, well, what does Hennessy think about not being in certain bars? People don't want them there. And he said, well, we really don't care. We're not here to please those people. We're here for the community. African-Americans have been proven to be more loyal with their money, same as the Latin community. We are more loyal with our dollars. And cognac, I think, gets that. 
Yolanda, thank you so much. It's been just a great pleasure. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. That was culinary historian Yolanda Shoshana. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So, Chris, seeing as it's warmer weather now and we're going to be getting some really lovely tomatoes, what is your favorite way to eat a tomato, raw or cooked, or both? I haven't had a good tomato in 20 years, so everyone keeps saying it's the season for tomatoes, but even if I go to the farmer's market, they're still not good. So normally, I mean, if it was really good, I would slice it, I'd just throw some olive oil on it, uh, some sea salt, and thinly slice mozzarella and some basil leaves. I mean, the classic combination and call it a day. I remember the time when you could do that and the flavor of the tomatoes, you know, was so great. You don't want to muck it up, right? I mean, what about you? What do you do? I agree with you. There's nothing better than a really good raw tomato. But a couple other things I like to do is to roast some maybe cherry tomatoes. Sometimes they're the best ones. And then to puree them and use that juice in a vinaigrette which gives it sort of a robust with olive oil and cherry mm, vinegar a and a little bit of mustard, maybe a little bit of, uh, you just rub the bottle with garlic. That is a wonderful summer vinaigrette. I find that almost any tomato, including the ones, I wouldn't use a supermarket cardboard tomato out of season, but in the summer, almost any tomato, if you slice it and salt it 20 minutes ahead of time, is just so much better than it was to begin with. So that really does help with these not so flavorful tomatoes. My favorite way to cook a tomato is in a tart. And again, I use beef steak. I salt them 20 minutes ahead of time, half an hour ahead of time, slice them about a third of an inch thick. And I make a tomato and basil tart in a bacon crust. And there's ricotta and mozzarella and parmesan in there. And I just love that whole baked combo. So that would be another one that I love. Why don't you come over and make that, and I'll eat it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Sounds like a a plan. Yeah. All right. Pretty yummy. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. My name is Leo. I'm from Portland, Oregon. How can we help you? Yes. I just had a quick question for you guys. I recently took a tour of a citrus grove in Southern California, and I left with about like 20 pounds of mixed citrus, like a giant reusable bag just overflowing with fruit. Oranges, lemons, pomelos, grapefruit, just the whole bunch. I was just looking for any suggestions for what I can do with all this variety of fruit. So I was thinking curds or some sort of like simple syrup, but does anything else come to mind? Well, I squeeze my own either orange or grapefruit juice every morning. I buy bags of it, right, for, you know, juice oranges. And they'll keep almost two weeks, 10 days in the fridge if you keep a cold fridge, like, you know, 38 degrees. So some of those, if you like to start your day that way, you can get through quite a few. I would say juicing them and freezing the juice would be my guess, because, you know, how much curd do you want to use, right? Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of recipes. You know, we have a great recipe for caramel oranges where you peel and slice caracare oranges and you make a sauce for it, a caramel sauce. And But, you know, you're going to use up four or five oranges. I assume you're talking about 30 or 40 pieces of fruit here, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think Juicing them and freezing the juice is the only thing you could do with that amount of it, right, Sarah? Right. I mean, other than that, you'll have to do more work. 
You can also make marmalade. You can candy the peels. You could make orange vodka or citrus vodka, you know, by, again, the peels cover it with vodka, but that's just the peels. You need to get rid of the juice, too. I agree with Chris. I think juicing them and freezing the juice is good. You can actually freeze them whole, but then that takes up a lot of space in your freezer. The juice will still be good. I don't know how good the rind will be. You know what? You might want to pick up the Ball Complete Jar of Home Preserving. I'm sure they could come up with all sorts of other suggestions of things to do with all that citrus that would be fun if you're up for new projects. (laughs) Absolutely. One thing you could do is make preserved lemons, right? Oh, God, yes. That's a good idea because those will last and those are fabulous. And uh, Those take a while. They take a while, but you can do that at home. Right. Or you could uh, make, you know, candied peels for all your friends. For your 150 closest friends. Or, yeah. Just start your day with a really big glass of fresh (laughs) juice for the next 10 days. You'll be healthy. Yeah. Yeah, sounds great. All right. Leo, take care. Thank you. Yes. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Nina Cardinal. How can we help you? I've been making my grandmother's traditional fresh strawberry pie for years, and I have no idea what I've done wrong the last couple of times I've tried to make it. The filling is really simple. It's a cup sugar, a cup of boiling water, three tablespoons cornstarch, and three tablespoons of strawberry jello powder. And for whatever reason, I can't get it to set. It's just soup couple things. The amount of jello powder sounds a little scant. I would use, you know, powdered gelatin would be the obvious thing to use to gel a clear liquid, not cornstarch. Cornstarch would be more for a gravy or some other things. That was the original recipe was cornstarch? It's interesting. Not only is it the original recipe, but my mother at her home, who has, it was her mom who taught me how to make this pie, created it and said, I got it to set, brought it over. We ate it. It was delicious. She goes, what are you doing wrong? Who can't make jello? <laughs> the time I made it, I actually added an extra packet of gelatin and it made it firm, almost right. too firm, quite gross, actually. Let me ask a question. Have you made this recipe and it worked perfectly? Yes, I have made it successfully in the past. And all of a sudden it stopped working. Is that right? Yes. Bizarre. And nothing was changed like Maybe you used a different kind of gelatin or... Different kind of strawberries. The only things that I can think of are the recipe calls for you to add the dry ingredients in a saucepan, add a cup of boiling water, then boil that on the stove, and then cool it, and then pour it all over the strawberries. One of the times I didn't let it cool very much, and I thought, well, you know, who cares? It's going to go into the refrigerator. It'll set. It'll be fine. And maybe that's the problem. The second time around, I may have overboiled it. I understand yeah, that sometimes cornstarch yes. can, can like break down. That's exactly yeah. what I was about to say. You can't get cornstarch over 180 degrees or so. If you whisk it too much and cook it too much and heat it too much, it'll break down. Yeah. I would look at other recipes and see if they use powdered gelatin instead of uh, – the cornstarch is an outlier Weird. for me. I wouldn't use cornstarch here. There's also – there's two kinds of powdered gelatin – There's the low-sugar version, which comes in a pink package, and the regular one. Although this one Mm -hmm. seems like a fairly high-sugar application. So I would use powdered gelatin and look on the back of the box to figure out how much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this. I love this pie, by the way. Oh, it's so fresh and delicious. And the best part about it 
Is even ugly soupy pie tastes good. Well, there you go. And then there's the version with pretzels <laughs> and and and, uh, and cream whip, right? That version. Oh, oh and you make that often, that, huh, that, Chris? That, that strawberry pretzel salad. No, I'm just telling you. <laughs> when I had this ten years ago, I laughed at it. I thought it was junk food, and I couldn't stop yeah. eating it. And we made it in Milk Street about six months ago, just for fun. It's so good. It's disturbingly really, refreshingly it's delightful. Just, it's it's one of those summer. things. Yeah, it's so okay, good. Okay, pretzel I might, salad. I might, you guys might have convinced me. Strawberry pretzel salad. Okay. Sarah, please try it. I yeah, will. Come on. I will. <laughs> Give it a chance. Okay, Nina. Right. Give Jello a chance. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Okay, I take Nina. Take care, Nina. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you want to expand your pantry or maybe find a new favorite recipe, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Andrew Wood. How can we help you? Well, I was talking to a friend of mine in Hilton Head, South Carolina, not too long ago, and they were talking about how their daughter loves crab legs. And my comment was, ah, crab legs, like having candy for dinner because they're so sweet and delicious. My friend was taken aback by this, the notion that crab legs might be sweet tasting. No one in their family can even taste it. And it made me wonder, are they sweet or is it just me? And if they are, I know they don't contain any sugar or carbohydrates. What causes that sweet flavor? I have to preface my answer by saying anytime I am asked a scientific question about food and I'm not absolutely sure of the answer. My answer is always amino acids. So I'm going to tell you that that it's the amino acids, (laughs) which I think is actually true, but the prevailing wisdom would be that it's certain types of amino acids, which give it a sweetness. I mean, shrimp is sweet, right? Lobster's sweet. Scallops are sweet. You know, it's just a function of shellfish, I think, many shellfish. One thing you said was interesting your family can't taste the fact that crab legs are sweet. They have no sense of that. Right, which brings me to my next question. Why can some people taste that sweetness and others clearly cannot? Well, it's a long story, but I'll make it short. It used to be that people thought that all of your ability to taste was on your tongue, right? And that there were certain sections of your tongue, salty, sweet, sour, etc. That's not true. There are different receptors on taste buds that taste those fundamental elements. Sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami. How many taste buds you have does vary from person to person. You can do a test by putting a blue dye in your tongue and someone takes a picture and they can count the number of buds. The problem is almost all flavor is perceived by smell. Because when you put some in your mouth, it goes up the nasal passage, there are receptors there, communicates that to the brain. Most of what we consider to be, you know, taste is us smelling. So it could be a function of some people have fewer taste buds, uh, literally, you know, uh, on the tongue. And the other is some people perceive smell differently, aroma differently than others. I mean, Sarah? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think all three of us would agree that all the shellfish we just mentioned are sweet. So we're obviously all in the same situation in terms of number of taste buds. Maybe we're more genetically disposed that way. It's like the anti-cilantro gene. Some people absolutely hate it. It tastes like soap to them, and they've determined that that's something you're born with you can't help. Yeah, well, there's one other study that's interesting, and that is it's not so much your physical ability to detect aromas. It's how the brain processes that information. 
So a lot of it's training, and it's your brain's ability to process the sensory input from the aroma and from those sensors. Just practice is also part of taste, too. Yeah. Similar to how sommeliers get really good at sensing wines. Or coffee tasters. It would be another category. Yeah. At least I'm happy to know I'm not alone in being able to taste the sweetness of crab legs. No, oh, yeah. I, we agree with yeah, you. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Just stop putting sugar on it. It'll be fine. <laughs> right. Not. Okay. Andrew, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. you take Great care. To talk to you. Yeah. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's my conversation with writer and ex-convict Daniel Jenis. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of 
stew. I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with writer and ex-convict Daniel Jenis. During the 10 years he spent in prison... Daniel used cooking and food as a mental escape from the realities of prison life. Daniel, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. Um, you had a really interesting childhood. Your dad, Alexander, a well-known Russian writer, but your home was visited by all sorts of interesting people, from Brishnikov to Umberto Eco. Do you remember those visits, or that's just something that's vaguely in your history? My father, who was something between a dissident, a journalist, and then eventually just an author, uh, is a very successful one in the, in, in the world of, of Russian literature. So being the son of Alexander Jenis, I was exposed to some of the best that there was in the late 80s and early 90s in terms of cultural influences. That means I got to have dinner with Umberto Eco when I was reading all of his novels. I mean, <laughs> between appetizer and main course, I ran upstairs and got all the books and made him sign them, you know. Um, I, got, I got to see Baryshnikov and uh, never realized how, how short he was. <laughs> and um, I say all this perhaps to, to point out what, what a disappointment my later bad decisions led to. So after a, a promising youth meeting, wonderful, interesting people, and even a, a start at a career in publishing, I acquired a heroin habit, and from there it took a year to bring me to my knees. I went to Stuyvesant High School. I got a scholarship to NYU. I graduated with honors. And three years later, I was in prison. So you end up in maximum security for many of the years you're there. Seven what, out of ten. That's a lot. Um, so how long did it take you to get acclimated to kind of figure out, if you ever do, the system and to feel like you have some sense of security or maybe you never have that? That's a great question. How long does it take to get acclimated to a system that's clearly meant to 
grind you down and expresses its hatred for you in, in every brick and every morsel of food, you know, and every sound you hear. But you never really acclimate because the the situation of, of, of a prisoner is so uh different from what humankind is 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 sort of intended to experience it's it, it's like being an astronaut it's abnormal how bad is the food the regular food there is this all like surplus chicken parts and cheese and stuff that nobody else will eat what is it the state provides a diet for the prisoners that is perfectly composed by a nutritionist it comes out of plastic bags and it's heated in uh, big vats of water, kind of like sous vide bags of uh, chicken a la king. But the truth is, is that because the ingredients are so low grade and because nobody even bothers to spice it for taste, the food is hard to eat. There's things like boiled rice, which you would think are too simple to mess up, but even that is really hard to get down because what they do is they simply put a bag of rice into a, a huge metal bin of water and stick it in a stove for four hours. And what comes out, it's cooked, but you have to drain off the water. I mean, it's nothing that even resembles rice. They do the exact same thing with, with pasta. They put, they put uh, 50 pounds of pasta into cold water and put it in an oven for four hours. And then they serve it with the water it got cooked in. That's the sauce. <laughs> and, and but but food, I would assume, in prison becomes incredibly important. Right? Food in prison is the stuff of life, and your life often revolves around food. For for guys that aren't drug addicts in prison or that aren't you know heavily invested into religion or or gangs or something else, they live to eat. I've seen plenty of men who go to the mess hall and they easily get seven trays of uh, fake mashed potatoes with fake gravy and soybean and they slurp it down until they're full of two and a half, three pounds of this stuff and uh, they go back to their cell and they lie down and they fall asleep uh. from, from being so full of the stuff. And, you know, they, they just had a 3,000 calorie meal. But they didn't eat it because it tastes good. They ate it to feel full and maybe to get a little comfort from it, to get a little pleasure from feeling so full, you know. So when you were in prison, you really wanted to learn how to cook, even under very difficult circumstances. So when I arrived in jail, there was the choice of going to the mess hall and eating very bland bad food or cooking your own food out of items from the commissary and uh, foods that your family is kind enough to bring you. They sell tools for cooking that food. And there begins the quite common absurdity of prison life. They sell plastic hot pots for a total of $18. I've spent probably $180 on hot pots over 10 years because uh, here's the problem. The hot pots have little thermostats in them that prevent them from boiling water. So you can never get a, a, a properly hot cup of coffee. And as for the spaghetti and rice that they sell you in the commissary, I have no idea how you would cook it unless you 
worked on your hot pot. So within the first couple of months, uh, I had guys teach me how to rig the pots. And rigging them was not just a question of successfully getting that thermostat to, to, to stop uh, bothering you, but to do it invisibly. Because once the correctional officers, the guards, if they saw any alteration in the hot pot, they would take it away from you and they could write you a ticket. You could be locked inside for 30 days just for having changed the thermostat on your hot pot. So you had to do it cleverly enough so that it couldn't be seen. And one of the classics of prison cuisine is Jack Mac, I guess? Yes. And what is that? When, when you read about prisoner, when you talk to prisoners about dishes that they really enjoyed or remember, almost always you hear about Jack Mac. And that's because mackerel in a can is one of the cheapest sources of protein that prisoners have. I've never actually seen this stuff uh, eaten uh, in the real world. Although I have seen in 99 cent stores the same cans of mackerel. But I cannot imagine anybody in the free world eating this because the mackerel that comes out of the can has its skin still on it. Now, fish skin is not, you know, a bad thing. You know, I love salmon skin, for example. But this skin is, the, the mackerel has been boiled in brine and also its spine has been left in as well as some of the innards. So the, the, the liquid it's sitting in and the slime around it makes it a really unpleasant looking thing. But it is nevertheless a hunk of fish that you can fry. And that's why guys are into Jack Mac because they know how to very gently take the skin off of the Jack Mac, remove the entrails, and leave clean fillets of, of white fish. They're the size of maybe three thumbs put together. And they're battered by, uh, usually uh, one of the best batters was broken up cereal. And we would use mayonnaise to derive oil. So to get oil, you either have to freeze mayonnaise by putting it out on your window in the winter, or you boil the mayonnaise in the summer. Uh, both processes uh, will cause the mayonnaise to divide, and you can uh, pour off the oil and then fry your battered fish. I mean, it's, it's already cooked, so you don't really need to fry it, but it tastes a lot better. And... Uh, uh, serving it, you know, some some guys would actually make a business out of this. They'd buy cans of Jack Mac, which were about a dollar each, and they would fry the Jack Mac all day in there to make little uh, portions of it, uh, which they would then sell for one pack of cigarettes. And and they did pretty good. But those guys, they they, they smelled like fried fish always. I mean, even if they weren't cooking that day, they still smelled like it. You, you just couldn't wash it out of yourself after a while. So when you're frying the Jack Mac, what's the heat supply? How, how do you create a stove top? So when you're a serious cook, even the uh, altered hot pot is not enough. What you need to do as a serious cook is to build what's called an eye. An eye is the inner coil of the hot pot removed and mount it on a metal can and wired directly so it can be plugged right into an outlet. And 60 seconds later, it's red hot and you can put a metal dish on it and fry. So you were also able to make dumplings, pupusas, pork rinds. How did you do all of that? So what's interesting is that flour 
is hard to come by. So there's a method for making um, both uh, Asian-style dumplings, which we used to make with a corned beef filling, because corned beef can come in cans, and uh, Caribbean-style dumplings, which have no fillings but are deep-fried. So the way to make the dough is by taking a bag of really cheap macaroni. We used to have 99-cent uh, two-pound bags that came from Egypt. Hmm. And you would soak the macaroni overnight. And then in the morning, it, w- it would be very tedious work, but you would mush it and mush it and, and squeeze the water out until you made a paste out hmm. of it. And then you can roll that. And, you, you know, it never really stuck together too great the way real dough would but it it worked it tasted like boiled dough when you made your dumplings so you spent a lot of time uh cooking all sorts of interesting food you obviously took a risk doing that i guess a lot of energy was that because food was central to your mental well-being in prison or some other reason chris we all risked getting box sentences and getting our stuff taken away and maybe getting beat up by the cops just to get a a decent meal. And you might think that that's pretty uh, frivolous of a person to to do all that, to risk going to the box where you can be driven crazy just to have a, a dumpling. But I'll tell you, taste is one of the real ways you can travel through time and go home for a moment and when i when i ate something like uh i had a korean friend make me lo mein once and it tasted just like chinese takeout and when you eat something like that you're not in prison for that moment daniel thank you so much it's been um it's just been a real honor and pleasure having you on milk street thank you for having me That was writer Daniel Jenis. You can read his article, The Fine Art of Cooking in Prison, at Thrillist.com. This is Mill Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, chicken fricassee with tomatoes, potatoes, and carrots. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. One of the dishes I love are chicken fricassees because it's a stovetop, it's in a skillet, you can vary the different components with what's on hand. But it's one of those dishes that I don't think people make as much as they should. We found a great version from San Juan, a chef called Jose Santaea. His book is Cocina Tropical. He also has a restaurant there. It's pretty standard, but it has just wonderful flavors, and it's just a wonderful template for creating your own fricassee at home. That's right. This is not Julia Child's chicken fricassee. This is a very Latin American chicken fricassee. And you can't really talk about Puerto Rican food, especially without talking about sofrito, which is kind of the basis of all of the cooking in Puerto Rico. Usually has onions, garlic, oregano, sometimes tomatoes, sometimes chilies, cilantro, smoked ham is often added. And you would just make up a whole batch of that, keep it in the refrigerator, and then add a half a cup or a cup of that to start your chicken fricassee. And that's what we're doing here. Jose also adds some bright acidic elements. So there's some capers in there and some pimento stuffed green olives as well, which adds a little bit of freshness to this. It's very rich with some bone in chicken thighs. So it kind of cuts through that richness. So as you said, potatoes, carrots, chicken, but it also has what for me is a surprise ingredient, a half cup of 
rum. So in addition to some wine, which is very common in chicken fricassee, he adds some rum and it really adds a very different flavor profile to this that kind of elevates the dish to something very different than what you would expect from a chicken fricassee. Well, thank you. I mean, this is a recipe, chicken fricassee with tomatoes, potatoes, and carrots from Jose Santaella in San Juan. But it's one of those dishes you can customize and play with leftovers, whatever's in the fridge. And that's one reason we love it. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for chicken fricassee with tomatoes, potatoes, and carrots at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll explains why coconut oil may not be as healthy as advertised. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Doyle from Eugene, Oregon. Hi, Doyle. What is your question today? For a number of years, I've been filling my freezer with burritos, and I eat them when I'm not feeling creative or just am too tired to make anything more complicated. And the meat burritos go really well, but this summer, the challenge I took up was to start making vegetable burritos. And the problem is the meat burritos assemble really easily, but the vegetables have a bunch of ingredients and they tend to fall all over the place. So I've been looking for something that goes well with vegetables that's kind of maybe the consistency of peanut butter, a little bit thicker, that would let me roll them up and get a shape on them. So I'm looking for creative ideas. Okay, okay. First of all, I love the way you say 
when you're not feeling creative, you go and eat a burrito from the freezer. But the fact of the matter is you made that burrito in the freezer. So kudos to you. That's impressive. Well, thank you. You know, a way to go is roasted vegetables that you puree. Years ago, I did um, some mushroom enchiladas. I called them enchiladas. They were burritos. I got corrected. Uh, and I used portobello mushrooms, and I marinated them with lime juice and garlic and stuff. But then I roasted them, but I also roasted on a tray some garlic cloves, some onions, and some tomatoes, plum tomatoes. And then what happened was those vegetables, the other three, not the mushrooms, got pureed. And then the whole thing got combined with a can of green chilies, a small can, you know, there's little tiny cans. And that really right. held together pretty well. I'm also thinking tomato sauce. Of course, any, you know, like you said, peanut butter, a peanut sauce, a tahini sauce. But I have another idea. Again, it's a little bit of work, which is any vegetable when roasted and pureed can make a beautiful sauce. I made a sauce out of cauliflower for pasta because I was trying to do a sort of lower fat, creamy sauce, and it worked really well. I roasted the cauliflower, and then I just pureed it. That could be a lovely binder. I'm sure Chris has some ideas. I have two too. words. Yeah. Black beans. Ah. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, like a bean burrito. I mean, black beans are perfect. You can buy them in a can. I would, you know, essentially refry them in a skillet. You could use a whole bunch of chilies or, a, you know, sauce Colorado or whatever you want. Garlic, onions, you can season any way you like. But I think canned black beans would be the basis of my Maybe you ma- mash them a little yeah. bit, though? No, 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 yeah. You have mash them, but do it in a skillet with whatever kind of sofrito you want or chilies or spices. And nice chilies like guajillos or anchos, maritas, I mean, things that are not spicy but have a lot of flavor. So I think chilies and black beans would be my combination. Yeah, I like that. great. At the farmer's market here, we have people who sell wonderful varieties of mushrooms and wonderful varieties of peppers. Oh, good. Oh, my heavens. I'm getting hungry thinking about it. All right. Well, you're impressive. Yeah, I wish your freezer was in my house. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, I'd like like one of your burritos. I I want to open my freezer up at 6 o'clock and see a bunch of burritos. (laughs) Thanks for calling. Yes. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Annette Mambuca from Chicago. How can we help you? I was uh, watching the show and... They were making this fabulous-looking semolina ricotta cheesecake. Semolina, and yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Semolina, correct. And I don't know, it had some sugar, and I don't eat sugar. And so I had uh, written in to find out if I could make it with monk fruit sugar, which is a granulated sugar substitute. And no one knew and suggested I call in. In general, in baking, with batters and cakes and those sorts of things, you don't want to mess with sugar because sugar attracts water, holds on to it, does a lot of things chemically that if you use a substitute, you're going to get into trouble, even if you use honey versus sugar, it's a problem. Right. However, in cheesecake, it's not that delicate. I think you could probably put any kind of sweetener in cheesecake, and it's not going to separate. It's just a bunch of cheese and eggs sitting there. I don't think it's going to be a problem. I prefer not to eat any sugar, but if chemically it needed, you know, if I needed to put a quarter cup, so you could cut the sugar back, let's say, by half. I don't think it's going to affect the recipe. Maybe the browning oh, a little bit. And then you could, if you wanted, put some sort of sauce on top just to give it a little more flavor right. that doesn't have a ton of sweetener in it. Or you could sweeten it with something else. I would just cut the sugar in half. Cut it in half or two-thirds. Okay. Besides which, you have cream cheese in it, which is already, you know, and eggs and other things. Right. Yeah, right. I think that's fine. Yeah, Sarah? I think that's good advice. It is worth making this recipe, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
But anyway, you cut it way back. It'll be fine. And if it's okay. if, if you need some more sweetener, just put a little of a fruit coulis on top. Okay, yeah. great. All right. Thank you. Th- so thanks much. for calling. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to solve your culinary mystery, so please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Zach from Seattle, Washington. How can we help you? So I bought a $100 bottle of vinegar, and it was amazing. It was more transcendent than I thought it could have been. Balsamic, right? Yes. Obviously, unless I win the lottery, I can't afford a $100 bottle of vinegar on my table every night. What are some things I could look for for kind of middle-of-the-range balsamic vinegar? Well, first of all, I have to ask, what did you do with this $100 bottle of balsamic vinegar? How did you use it? You know, like put it on a little bread with some butter. That alone was mind-blowing. Okay. And then I'd use it in kind of my everyday salads and mostly as a dressing as a topping. Okay, well, I have I actually won a little tiny bottle uh, years ago from a tasting of $150. It was a tiny bottle. And the only thing you should do with that is probably drizzle it on, like, strawberries or put it on ice cream or put it on shavings, of, you know, chunks of Parmesan. I would not use it in a dressing because you're going to not notice how great it is in a dressing. You could use a cheaper version of that. So if you still have any left, it's a drizzling balsamic. It just... Don't mix it with anything. Mm-hmm. And that stuff is aged at least 10 years. It's from Modena in Italy, up in the north area. It probably says, you know, Aceto Balsamico Tradizionale on the bottle. It has that stamp, which certifies it's from that region. The next step down is less aging, right? So it's two or three or four years of aging. If you're going to use it in a salad dressing, you know, Sarah may disagree, but white balsamic for me is really inexpensive. You can get it anywhere now. It's not as acidic as a typical red wine vinegar, and it's great in a salad dressing. So I would go for something much less expensive for salad dressings. But if you want something that is special for drizzling, you know, three to five years of aging would be fine, right? DOP is the top tier that most aged that Chris just talked about. And then next one down would be condimento, which is still good quality balsamic, but not quite as good. And so that would be what you'd be looking for on the label to get that next tier down. And then the third one is IGP, which is a more affordable one that you can use every day in salad dressings. Look for Condimento or IGP. You'll find okay. something, I think, that works for your salad dressings. And, you know, that's what birthdays and holidays are for, is to ask people to buy you that. But he's going to be so disappointed, though, after the $100 bottle. No, get them to buy you another $100 no, no, bottle. No, but, I mean, if he's going to drizzle that, as you said, on bread with butter, you know, you're not going to put white balsamic on bread and no, butter. No, 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 so. but you could get a Condimento you could. red. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, glad you had that experience. You get, you know, Christmas is coming up sometime. <laughs> yes. Yes. So. All right. Zach, thanks for calling. Yes, Zach. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. My cooking tip for me is to use a cast iron pizza pan and put it on the floor of the oven to uh, cook my uh, chicken parm. Uh, that way, it replicates a salamander uh, in order to uh, give it the finishing uh, crust that is needed for chicken parm because no one likes soggy chicken parm. And in the restaurants, 
they have salamander ovens that get up close to a very, very high temperature that home ovens simply don't have. So that's worked very well for me to get a nice chicken parm that is not soggy. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's time to hear from Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? You going to tell me there's something else I shouldn't be eating or, or something I should be eating? Well, uh, it's funny because I, I feel like I'm always just sort of trying to drive us to the, the middle. And in this case, I wanted to talk about coconut oil, not in the sense that I want to tell you never to consume it, but that it's not the health food that everybody seems to think it is these days. Well, can I ask you a question about that? Because I, I do have coconut oil in my pantry. How did it become a health choice in terms of oils? It's always hard to pin these kinds of things down, but um, sometimes it becomes something that uh, either you know someone who's who's influential in the sort of food or videos uh, starts talking about. Um, there's YouTube videos with lectures that have you know a million views where where people extol the benefits or or go against it and say that coconut oil is pure poison. Coconut oil, for some reason, I think really took off, especially with some people on the, the keto diet craze, uh, really trying to push some, you know, when they talk about bullet coffee or, or trying to, to put extra fats into foods. Coconut oil seems to have become one of the oils of choice. Uh, people argue that it has all these antioxidants or that it has all of these other benefits to it that can really help you. And it it's it's not as if I think it's it's a you know terrible. Others will tell you it's terrible. And they'll point to the fact that coconut oil is is massively full of saturated fats. Now I think sometimes uh, the case against fats in general and saturated fats gets overblown. Um, but having said that, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, eating something which is pure saturated fat in large amounts is good for you. Uh, you know, using butter, using oils, uh, these are things that you should use to properly prepare food, to cook it well, even to flavor it in a variety of ways. But but we shouldn't start going carte blanche and feeling that, you know, putting as much coconut oil in our diet is going to be something that's really beneficial. The, the downside of coconut oil is it has... Uh, a lot of saturated fat in it. Is that the only thing or are there other issues? On the harm side, that's what people would point to. People also argue that, uh, you know, it contains a fair amount of medium chain triglycerides or MCTs. And there have been studies that show that people who eat oils that contain more MCTs have lost more weight than control groups, say, who ate more olive oil. But even off of that, I would hesitate to say uh, that the studies that have been done uh, would could really single out and say that this is something you should do because it's going to help you lose weight. In general, trying to change any one nutrient in order to lose weight rarely works. So, you know, buying sort of extra virgin cold-pressed coconut oil and starting to put it in everything you consume, it would be like doing the same thing with butter. You would never really think that the latter is something healthy that you would do, but for some reason with coconut oil, people do. Is there a difference from a scientific point of view or physiological point of view between animal fats, milk fats, and uh, vegetable fats? 
Well, most vegetable fats tend to be unsaturated. You can think of it in general that saturated fats tend to be solid at room temperature and unsaturated fats tend to be more liquid. Um, so most of the vegetable oils, olive oils, uh, canola oils, those are liquid. They're more likely to be unsaturated. Things like butter, animal fat, and even you know coconut oil will often um, be solid at room temperature. Coconut oil is one of the vegetable ones, which is more like an animal fat. My sister tells me I should be taking two or three tablespoons of Evo, you know, extra virgin olive oil a yep. day. And I, I ask why, and I get a very murky answer. So I'm going to ask you. So is this a good idea or a bad idea? So sometimes I've heard people do this because they're trying to address constipation or something like that. And I still would say that's not the way I would go about it. Um, um, but from a health standpoint benefit, no, there's really no reason to do it. She also could be thinking that perhaps it would satiate you. You know, some people have found that more fat in their diet does lead them to feel fuller. It's one of the big arguments of a keto diet uh, is that, you know, if you really go with a low-fat diet, you wind up being hungry all the time and you wind up over consuming. But again, usually a well-balanced diet is going to be better for you almost any day of the week. Dr. Carroll, uh, <laughs> another promise health food down the drain. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine and also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take a free online cooking course, or order our latest cookbook, which is Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStream. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.